0: Hey everyone, I'm Nate Vinio, and this is Something to Gnaw On. A short podcast for the Christian with a short attention span, or just short on time. Designed to give you something to mentally or spiritually chew on throughout your day. A Bible study in bite-sized form, if you will. This episode is Leadership Team Conflicts, which is part two in the series Handling Conflict King David Style. Old blood and guts. How's that for a nickname? and that would be accurate in terms of who he was on the battlefield, but not at all a resounding approval for his character, especially off the battlefield. If it was ever an assignment of killing the enemy, he would find a way. Eventually, he ends up in command of the Third Army, and the race to Berlin is on. In addition to overthrowing the Nazis, what was at stake was who was going to end up with control over Germany when the war was over a free capitalistic West, or a communistic East. Unfortunately, Patton didn't make it to Berlin first, and when the war was over, he was stationed in Bavaria and given instructions for him and his army to act as prison guards, with Patton being the warden. And this didn't set well with him. He was about killing the enemy, not keeping him alive. And as World War II comes to a close, the Cold War begins and he begins to make overtures to provoke a war with the Russians. And in his infamous diary, Patton outlines that he has a plan to get the Russians to fire the first shot so he can have a pretext to drive them out of Germany. This attitude and subsequent behavior sent his superiors into a frenzy. A rogue general is a disaster waiting to happen. A short time later, a Russian general, an ally at the time, enters Patton's command post in Bavaria and marches into his office. It would appear that Patton freaks out. He reaches into the drawer of his desk, pulls out one of his famous pearl-handled revolvers, spins the cylinder and sets it on the desk, and goes into a major rant about the Russians being allowed onto U.S. property. The Russian general leaves in haste and under obvious threat of death. When the door closes behind him, Patton flips the actor switch off and says to his assistant something to the effect of, sometimes you have to put on a show to get your point across. He put the gun away and went back to work as if nothing had happened. In battle, Patton was golden. Behind a microphone, or speaking to the public in any manner, or as a diplomat, Patton was a disaster looking for a place to happen, sowing his disdain for the chain of command. So the dilemma for his superiors was that, on the one hand, Patton was hugely successful in battle and a patriot, loyal to the U.S., despite his misgivings towards leadership contributing significantly to the success of the army on the other hand a man with his influence and sway could create some pretty huge problems for the entire army especially in the hearts and minds of the soldiers and this cannot be overlooked or swept under the proverbial rug i've read of a few other generals who finished their careers out like this and it's sad they need to leave it was time for them to leave but they refused And it becomes a prickly situation trying to remove them, if it's even possible. One of those generals goes back to the time of King David. And the general's name was Joab. And I'm inclined to think that he was more problematic for David than Patton was for the allies. David had a half-sister named Zariah, and she had three sons that follow in Uncle Dave's footsteps. Their names are Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Right out of the gate, we have the nepotism card in play. Joab and Abishai end up being generals, with Joab taking the lead. Abishai even steps up like David did and kills a giant. And Asahel is listed as one of David's mighty men. And this is where I first noticed it getting a bit weird. There are a couple of lists of David's mighty men. Thirty-plus men are on each list, except for Joab which was hard for me to wrap my head around, especially when Abishai is on the list and recognized as, quote, the brother of Joab. The same is true of Asahel, quote, the brother of Joab. And oddly enough, Joab's armor-bearer named Naharai, is listed too, but Joab is distinctly absent. And it begs the question of why. How does the armor-bearer make it on the list of honor and recognition, but not the warrior? You can see that in 2 Samuel 23 and 1 Chronicles 11. While Joab had many successes, certainly enough to keep his job, we unfortunately need to look at the black marks on Joab's resume for this to make sense. The first black mark the murder of Abner. Several years after Saul's death, Saul's general by the name of Abner is serving Saul's son, Ishbosheth. Now there will be a pass/fail quiz at the end, worth a hundred points. So be sure to remember these names. Anyhow, even though David has been anointed king and is reigning from Hebron, he has several years of war with Ishbosheth. Eventually, after a conflict arises between Abner and Ishbosheth, Abner turns traitor and makes a commitment to David to turn the hearts of the remaining men in Saul's army over to David and to unite the kingdom. And his reward for doing so, David commissions him as general in his army. Now, this is going to be a problem, because in an earlier battle, Abner kills Asahel. Remember, he's Joab's brother. Asahel is chasing Abner on foot, but Abner can't outrun him. Finally, Abner stops abruptly and drives the butt end of his spear through Asahel's abdomen, killing him. Keep in mind, this happened in battle. And is considered acceptable self-defense in wartime as joab and abishai mourn their brother's death a grudge takes hold later in a time of peace when abner has defected and committed his troops to david generals joab and abishai waste no time killing him and given the fact that this was a time of peace this was not a righteous killing of any kind it was outright murder what's worse Is that it puts the unification with abner's soldiers and the region under his control in jeopardy surprisingly david doesn't remove joab but distances himself from joab and the murder and manages to keep the nation and the army together namely those who came over with abner but he doesn't do anything about joab and abishai at that moment in fact He says quite specifically in 2 Samuel 3.39, Even though I am the anointed king, these two sons of Zariah, Joab and Abishai, are too strong for me to control. So may the Lord repay these evil men for their evil deeds. Neither of his nephews have respect for his authority or his anointing. And this is the first we see of it, but Joab really does as he pleases. He obviously does enough to be a part of the team. But if it comes down to the team and his agenda, his agenda will win. And it's important to note here that David's lack of handling Joab immediately and throughout his life had to do primarily with the fact that Joab could do to David what Abner had just done to Ishbosheth and destroy the kingdom by taking the army and staging a coup of some sort. And if we take this potential for staging a military coup a bit further, Keep in mind that David was once a general commanding Saul's army, and Saul behaved towards David in a fashion that indicated he saw the risk of David taking the throne by force in like manner, as he had won the hearts and minds of the people and the army. But obviously, David refused to take out Saul. He also seems to have refused to take out Joab, possibly to keep from sparking a coup. You ever heard that phrase, keep your friends close and your enemies closer? The second black mark, the killing of Absalom. At the end of Absalom's coup, when David returns to Jerusalem and Absalom is running out, David makes a specific command that Absalom is not to be hurt, and he made sure that everyone heard it. What happens next would almost be comical in a sick and twisted way if it weren't true. As Absalom exits Jerusalem, he has the ultimate bad hair day. He gets hung up in the tree by his locks of love, his Fabio-like hair. And Joab wastes no time or thought taking his life. Instead of using his knife to cut him out of the tree, he stabs him three times. And his soldiers finish him off, discarding his body to the side of the road. And a quick off-topic observation. I wonder if this is the reason why one of the first things that happens to you when you join the military is they shave your head. No more hanging out in trees. It's bad for business, I guess. Anyhow. We got a huge leadership problem here. A commanding officer is willfully and blatantly disobeying a king's orders in front of his men and encouraging his subordinates to take part in the disobedience. To make the situation more convoluted, Joab ends up justifying it to David and rebuking David for mourning Absalom's death. You can read up on Absalom in 2 Samuel chapter thirteen and nineteen to get more of the backstory on this interaction between David and Joab regarding Absalom. This is another one that's difficult to dissect. On the one hand, Joab is rebuking God's anointed, hardly his place, especially after having disobeyed his orders, which is a brazenly cocky move. However, David accepts the counsel, addresses the army, and keeps the army in Jerusalem. At the same time, Joab is threatening to take the army away if the king doesn't applaud them for taking Absalom out. So Joab succeeds in appeasing the army and keeping them in Jerusalem but he tips his hand as to exactly how far he's willing to push the envelope if he doesn't get what he wants. Effectively, he's saying, What are you going to do? Fire me? You and what army? The third black mark. The murder of Amasa. Another enemy general is welcomed onto the roster by David. Amasa is his name, and his tenure is short-lived also. Amasa is a cousin to Joab and a nephew to David. David. When Amasa comes on the scene, it is first as a general for Absalom during Absalom's coup. David reaches out after the coup and intentionally makes Amasa a general over Joab on condition of turning the hearts of the men loyal to Absalom back to David. Amasa fulfills his end of the bargain and is officially appointed general, taking Joab's place. In time, David gives Amasa an assignment, but he misses the time frame allotted to accomplish the task. As a result, Joab uses it as a pretext to act unilaterally and kills him. This is not in battle against an enemy. They're on the same team. In fact, Joab greets him like a brother, and in the midst of a brotherly hug, he stabs him. He murders him. And just like that, Joab is killing off the competition. This becomes the second indictment against Joab, the second reason for his eventual death sentence. A good question to ask here is kind of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's easy to ask, am I a David, who's locked in some kind of no-win situation with a renegade general that I can't fire without destroying the whole organization? But the tougher question, and what may hurt a bit more, is to look at the possibility that we may have situations in which we are acting like Joab, acting entitled because of our bloodline, acting like an untouchable, acting with a false sense of security, manipulating those around us to get whatever we want. And I can't fathom that Joab didn't hold the killing of Uriah over David's head at some point in time. On the other hand, David's handling of this situation seems to be squarely focused on uniting the nation and keeping God's chosen people together, even though he's in mourning. He doesn't allow the personal slight to push him to pull the trigger to take Joab out or to act as Saul did towards him when he saw David as a threat. You know, there's a reason that there aren't a bunch of kids running around with names like Joab and Abishai and Absalom. But at the same time, David seems to be quite popular. And Nathan's a reasonably popular name too, certainly more prevalent than Joab, and hopefully we'll cover him in future episodes. But today's preschool lesson, if you will, is simply... Don't be a Joab, or name your kid after him, for that matter. Paul says in Romans twelve seventeen through 19 Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord." Today we've looked at the conflict David is having to deal with. Next week we'll finish off the topic of leadership team conflicts and look at how he handled it and see if he's able to rise to the standard that Paul sets after the fact in Romans 12. I'm Nate Vinio and I hope this has given you something to nod for today. Until next week, God bless.